You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. Seeing that picture of the the youth retreat and hearing the report um, brought back a lot of memories for me. A few decades ago, when I was much younger, I worked as a youth minister in a couple different churches here in San Antonio, actually. One, uh, one summer, I planned uh, what was just meant to be a fun outing for the youth. And as part of this outing, there was going to be a series of games. And the last game we did was something I call Amoeba. I know your, your mind's thinking, what in the world could that game be? Here's what, here's what that game was. I broke the youth into even groups. There are about 20 in each group. There's actually only two groups. So there's about two groups of 20. And what I did was I established an obstacle course. Obviously, we're outside. And each team had to go through these narrow openings. They had to go around trees. They had to go between fences. They had to go under low-hanging branches. They had to go over these small inclines. And finally, there was this sprint to the finish line. But here was the deal. They had to lock arms together, forming a circle, and they had to do it in that circle. They had to move across this obstacle course without breaking the circle. And you had to cross the finish line together. Now, obviously, this required some work because you had short kids and tall kids. You had had thin kids and not-so-thin kids. And you had athletic kids and those who were not as athletic. You had those that had various levels of coordination. You had kids with various levels of enthusiasm. People, kids who really wanted to win and those who are like, this is lame. Which you always have those kids. It was certainly fun to participate. It was amusing to watch as the groups tried to navigate this course. As I thought about that game, I realized in many ways that describes the church. We are linked together in Christ in a circle of love and faith. And we navigate life together through hard times, through obstacles, through victories, through struggles, through challenges. And we aren't all the same and don't have the same abilities. We don't all have the same strengths. We don't all have the same weaknesses. Some may struggle more than others. We're at different points of growth in Christ. Some may be hurting more than other people may be hurting. Some people want to press on aggressively. Other people are a little more hesitant. Some people may need help. Yet the goal isn't to finish the race. The goal is to finish the race together. To cross the line together. Linked arm in arm with our brothers and sisters. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. And what we're going to look at this morning is what that looks like. To live life together in a community of faith. What that means for us in our relationships with one another. How we treat one another. How we think about each other. How we talk to each other. How we talk about each other. And that's what we're going to look at this this morning. And of course, the Bible helps us towards this end. God's Word instructs us how we can be the kind of church that moves through life with all of its challenges, with all of its struggles, with all of its failures, with all of its obstacles, with all of its joys and victories and opportunities as one people united in Christ. For this to happen, we must develop 
intentional, redemptive relationships. You're going to hear me use that phrase many times. Intentional, redemptive relationships. It's very easy in any setting, as well as, you know, whether it's in a, a school setting, in a work setting, in the park, it's, it's, it's also very difficult, even in a church setting, to just have casual relationships with one another. To connect on common points of interest. Our Lord calls us to something intentional in our relationships. And it is that they be redemptive. That we are helping each other to grow in grace. And that we are purposeful in that. So if we're going to be the kind of church that, that has linked arms together, that is navigating life together, that hopes to cross the finish line, so to say. You understand what I mean by that? Together, it requires that we develop intentional redemptive relationships. So for this, we turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're taking a little break from our, our, our study in the Gospel of John, and we're going to look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 is going to help us understand what intentional redemptive relationships are and how they operate. Beginning in verse 12. And we're just going to read verses 12, 13, and 14. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the word of the Lord. May God establish our faith and love and obedience through it. Pray with me. Father, we come to this moment where we need to hear you. You have the words of life. Father, we pray that you would address our hearts. We pray that you would... Speak to our relationships, Lord. We pray that you would do a work that unites us as a community of faith through the word this morning. Father, we are listening. And we pray that you would grant us faith that what we hear, it would be, it would be met with a, a desire to trust you and to act in obedience. Please do this work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage just wonderfully lays out for us what redemptive relationships are based on and how they operate. But just first, a, a quick word about the intentional part of redemptive relationships. If we are each to grow into fully devoted followers of Christ... If, we're, if, we're, if that is what we're after, that means something specific about the kinds of relationships that we have in the body of Christ. And again, it's, we're talking about redemptive relationships. It means something very specific about how we love and relate to each other, how we care for each other, how we speak into each other's lives on a consistent basis. And again, this means that we are moving from just a casual relationship to a redemptive relationship. And we're intentional we're purposeful. We're determining that we're going to do that. We're determining we're not just going to have a casual relationship. We're determining that our relationships will ultimately be redemptive. And so we're going to look at what that, what that actually means for us. And it means three things. The first th is this. Intentional redemptive relationships begin with who we are in Christ. Verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And then he's going to list a series of qualities or characteristics. 
Now, as a preface to our actions of love that he's going to, to talk about, he tells us first, he gives us these crucial aspects of, of who we are in Christ. We are God's chosen ones. We are holy. And we are beloved. If we miss these three truths about who we are in Christ, our relationships will have much difficulty being redemptive. If we don't understand who we are in Christ, if we don't understand what has happened to us and what that has done in us, then it will be difficult to have redemptive relationships. Our relationships, if we don't understand who we are in Christ, they will become a means for us to meet our needs instead of seeking to serve other people. We will be living out of a perceived deficit and will easily try to use others to fill the things that we feel are pressing in our lives, to want to be loved, to want to be accepted, to want to be heard, to want to be valued, whatever it is. It will be difficult for us to regard other people, as Paul says in Philippians, to regard other people as more important than ourselves if we don't understand what God has done for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. That we have been chosen, that we are holy, and that we are beloved. God chose us. There's so many ways to understand that and so many ways that that helps us to see ourselves. We did not choose God. He chose us. We did not seek after God. He came seeking after us. We did not come running to God. He first came running to us. It isn't anything in us that made God choose us. It was mercy and compassion in Him. And he poured all that mercy and all that compassion out on us. We were running hard away from God. And he reached out and snatched us and brought us to himself. And he opened our eyes that we might see the truth. And he opened our heart that we might believe the gospel. And he continues through that to honor the new covenant that was made in Jesus' blood. When we understand this, we are humbled by this. This is a humbling thing in our lives. We know our story is one of grace, not human achievement. We didn't figure this out. We didn't figure out who Christ was. We didn't figure out to believe in Him. We didn't actually initiate any of that. God did that. And we are the recipients of such grace. When we consider our relationship with others, we must be solid in the understanding God chose us while we were yet sinners because that affects everything that we do and every way that we relate to other people. We are not in a superior position to anyone. And that affects how we relate to each other. And this frees us in so many ways. It frees us not only from sin and judgment that would be upon us if we were still in our sin. It frees us to live and to love God and to love other people. And it goes further than that. It says when he chose us, he made us holy. That is actually how he describes us as holy. When was the last time you said, I am holy? Do you consider yourself that way? Well, if you're like me, you almost immediately run into a problem. And that problem is, you know, there's sin in your life. So, so what's happening here? What is he talking about? He is basically, this is just another expression of the imputed righteousness that we're given in Christ. We have been made holy in Him. We have been made acceptable to God. We can actually approach holy God because in Christ we are holy. His holiness, His righteousness has been given to us and we are able to approach God in that. But that affects us. It affects our relationships. Certainly there is a practical side to holiness. 
But the, the practical side to holiness where we actually apply and ourselves to obey what God has told us to do. But we know we always come up short on that. But we know that our holiness is in Christ ultimately. That is our standing. That is our condition even as we continue to deal with sin. And that allows us to always approach God. But that also helps us understand how we can approach and love other people. See, he made us holy. And because he made us holy in Christ, we want to live holy even though we know we come up short. That's a remarkable thing. That we consider ourselves holy in Christ. Even though we know we sin, we know that as God sees us, he sees us as acceptable because of Christ. And that frees us to love and give ourselves and serve other people and have intentionally redemptive relationships. So we see that God chose us. We see he made us holy. But we also see something else here. He tells us something else, that we are the beloved of God. It seems so many Christians suffer and waver in life because they do not actively know the love of God for them. Somehow, and it's, it's very easy for this to happen, somehow we become more aware of the struggles and challenges of life than we are aware of the height and depth of the love of God for us personally and directly. It's easy to be swallowed by what's happening to us. It's easy for that to allow us to kind of shift our focus away and kind of pressure us and try to shape us in a different direction instead of truly understanding that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. When we talk about intentional redemptive relationships, the love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts becomes the source of that intentional redemptive relationship. It's the love of God that we're experiencing. If we feel that we are in a deficit and not loved, we will try to get that love from other people instead of extending that love to other people. Our relationships will not be redemptive. They will be using And so we must understand there is no greater thing than knowing the love of God that's greater far than any tongue or mind can tell. We need to keep coming back to that because everything around us, even in our own lives, everything that we, that we struggle against, everything that we're facing in our life, it wants to tell us that we're by ourselves, that we're just hanging out there, we're floating through this life, and we're not, we're tied to the love of God. And there's nothing that can free us from the love of God. He loves us. He loves you. He loves me. And because of that, that changes everything about our relationships and how we can love and care for each other. Maybe it would just be a good focus for you this week. We talk a lot about the love of God. Probably the first verse that anybody learns when they become a Christian, is John 3.16. But that can just become background noise for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just kind of assume that. No, we need to pull that and put it right in front and center. We need to put it right in front of us. To know the love of God, the height and the breadth, the depth, the reach, the strength, the tenacity, the fervor of the love of God. Maybe that would be a good exercise for us this week. To spend time just pouring ourselves into the Word and finding those passages like Romans 8 that tell us about the love of God, that help us see the love of God, that we meditate upon that, that we actually go to the Father and say, open my heart that I might see afresh, that I might experience anew your love for me. And then just let the Spirit do that work in you. Maybe it'd be great you find some, some great hymns. The love of God is one of the fair. I quoted from it. There's so many great songs and you just worship around that. 
and let that fill your heart. God chose us, He made us holy, and He loves us. This is who we are in Christ. And it is because of that, because God did that work in us and for us, that then we are able to do what's, what's coming next. Okay? That's what makes it possible. Because God is working in us as, the one, as, as, as those who are chosen, those who, who are made holy, and those He loves. And because of who we are, number two, because of who we are, this is our posture towards others in our intentional redemptive relationships. This is our posture. This is how we, we, we lurk towards them. This is how we think about other people. Verse 12 again, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Because of God's great work of salvation for us, and then in us, He is producing something very specific in terms of qualities in our lives. Characteristics, if you want to call them. And that is compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These are all Christ-like qualities. And this is what the Lord is doing. Again, we've talked about this many times, and I hope you find this encouraging, that what the Lord decrees, that what the Lord commands, He does. So when we know that we're to do something, we can know this is what the Spirit's doing in our life. We can know this is what God is going to actively bring about inside of us. He doesn't say, I want you to do this, now go figure out how to get it done, and let me know how it goes. When he commands something, he brings it about within us. So we see this command. We see that we are to put on these Christ-like characteristics. Now this verse is written as an imperative. An imperative is, is just a command. There is something that we are told to do here. And this, I, I, just kind of a, a side note here. This is one of those active verbs Put on, actively put on, he tells us, these qualities. It's one of these, these verses, of which there are many, that challenges that common-held belief that, uh, that often Christians will spout about letting go and letting God. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've said that. I've said that in the past in my life. We need to let go, and we need to let God. We need to let go of striving and just rest and let God do all these things in us. And and while I understand the desire to see God work, that doesn't really align with Scripture. I think it was J.I. Packer, I couldn't confirm this, but I think it was J.I. Packer who responded to this notion of let go and let God by saying, no, really what we're told in the, the Bible is to trust God and get going. And Paul tells us to take action. He tells us to do something purposeful here. To exercise our will and to act in a specific way. This is not contrary to faith. It is an expression of faith. And we are told to put on these things. Compassionate hearts. Kindness. Humility. Meekness and patience. Go after these things. Pay attention to your life in regard to these character qualities. Do you see these things in your life? If they're not in your life, let's put them into your life is what Paul is saying. I mean, earlier in this chapter, he told us there are some things that we need to take off. There are things we need to put off in our lives. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Lying to one another. He says these things you need to put out. And even before that, he talks about there are some things we even need to put to death in our life. These are very aggressive, active verbs. That we are told to do these things. Meaning that the Spirit's going to empower us to do these things. Now he is telling us that we need to not only put off these things, we need to put on like a piece of clothing. We need to take this old stuff off, throw it away. We need to put on this new thing. And this requires that we pay attention with faith. 
It requires us confessing when these things are not in our lives, when these things are not on display in our relationships, that we are able to say, yeah, I don't, I don't see these character qualities in my relationships. I don't, I don't see these things coming up in my conversations with people. It requires us asking God to grow us in these areas. This is what, how we put this on. It requires letting brothers and sisters speak into our lives in this area where there may be a lack of things, of these things in our relationships, a lack of these things in our conversations, a lack of these things in our decisions, that they're speaking into our lives saying, hey, you might want to pay attention here. There is purpose a decision to want to grow in these things. So we are working at them. We're not casual. We're not flippant. We're not superficial. We work at these things knowing that God who chose us and made us holy and loves us is working these things in us. That gives us the hope that even though we come up short, we're able to pick up and keep going because he's the one who chose us, who, who made us holy and who loves us. So let's look at these qualities a little more carefully. First, there is the compassionate heart. This, this basically means our heart is quick to go to mercy towards other people. It's quick to go to mercy, not, not judgment, not some kind of expression of self-righteousness. We are sympathetic to other people and what they are facing and dealing, but, but, but the compassionate heart here means something more than being sympathetic. It is about being empathetic. Sympathy has this distance to it. I can see what you're going through, and boy, that looks bad. We observe it. We feel bad from someone, but kind of from afar. Empathy is in direct compassion and understanding to someone. It involves, it involves actually taking on their struggles, moving toward them. Our heart actually feels the heaviness of what weighs other people down. And, when we, and we accept that heaviness with the willingness. And it's not easy. I mean, if your mind's clicking, and I hope you are engaged with it, you're thinking, that's going to push out a lot of stuff in my life where I'm focused. Yeah. That, that means I've got I've to set my stuff aside in order to engage other people. Yes, it does. That means inconvenience is a way of life in the community of faith. To a point maybe where we're not even thinking about inconvenience anymore. Or convenience. I remember, just it's, it's deeply impressed in my in my my mind uh, an example of this when much younger there was a family member in my church who went through a very very difficult difficult time in high school and I remember my my youth minister at that time he basically just stayed with this friend with this this family member for two days and two nights slept with them they ate together they prayed together they talked that was an example of a compassionate heart Talked about kindness. This is about a gentleness towards others. We aren't rough and edgy and prodding and poking. It speaks of a goodness towards others. I, I really like that, that this has become, I think this has been corrected in the general Christian population. But for so long we were so focused on edgy truth and calling people out and all that stuff that somehow or another we just kind of glossed over the many, many, many references that say put on gentleness. Gentleness is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness, kindness, kind of different sides of the same coin, matters to God. It should be reflected in our relationships. You know, it, it, and it's, it, it's, it's in our words, but it's also in our body language. A good pastor friend of mine, we, we talked about this. We talked about how, you know, I, I just, I was seeing him one day interact and with, with someone. And I said, you know, when you're talking to somebody, you, you do this. He said, no. I said, yeah. 
And he was able to point out the same thing in our life. You get these, these, these pursed lips, you fold it off. Your body language, language con- just conveys something about, no, there's no kindness here. There's no gentleness here. There, there's no, there, there, this, this, you're going to hit something hard and something rough and something with edges. Gentle words must come, but be aware of your body language. You know, this is just as a practical matter. One of the things I try to do to help me be kind toward Terry is when she comes into the room, I try to smile at her. Now, this, this isn't going to solve all your issues with kindness or lack of kindness, but I find this to be just a very practical thing. I don't do it as much as I should. I do it more than I used to, <laughs> I'll say that. But it is a thing of intention because I want that to be kind. I want that when I'm smiling at her, that's expressing something about how I'm thinking or feeling about her in the moment. It reminds me to be kind to her. That might help us with each other. When you see someone, and I love it on Sunday mornings when I see people walk in and I see other people, their face lights up. Hi, it's good to see you. You know you love it when someone smiles at you when, you th- when, when they see you. What if that was just a delight? That, that's an expression, I think, of kindness. A simple one, not, not completely all that, that Paul's talking about here, but just a simple thing. You just smile at someone. It's great to see you. Versus, oh, it's good to see you. I have to work on that. We all need to work on this, okay? Kindness, that's just a practical way. But it actually, it's about a gentleness. And that really leads us to humility. Humility is having an accurate and healthy appraisal of who we are. It's a lowliness of mind. It says, I am not the most important person in this room or any room. It says, my thoughts are not the most important thoughts in this room or any room. It says that my words are not the most important words in this conversation. It recognizes that the most important thoughts and the most important words in any room, in any conversation, is the Lord God's. There's this humility. I talked about it earlier. Paul says that we are to regard other people as more important than ourselves. This verse it doesn't say other people are more important to God than you are. It says in your relationships with one another, you regard each other as more important. We're all equally loved. We're all equally chosen. We're all equally made holy. But how we relate to each other, this redemptive relationship, we regard other people as more important than ourselves. I, can, I cannot think of anything more transforming to a community of faith than when people actually begin to practice that. That's humility on display. He talks about meekness. Meekness is very close to kindness and gentleness. These are all similar in a, in a real sense. It's like Paul is saying, hey, yeah, there's multifacets. We're looking at this one diamond all these different, different facets to this one diamond. He's getting to it again and again. Meekness basically is saying it's a maintaining of kindness and a maintaining of humility and a maintaining of gentleness in any situation. There's a kindness. The situation, no matter how difficult or how trying it can, it cannot dislodge or displace compassionate hearts and kindness and humility. That's the meekness he's talking about here. This resolve to stay in it, to stick with it. And this leads to the last quality or characteristic. Patience. Patience. Meekness has to do with the resolve to stay compassionate, humble, kind, no matter what. Patience is a desire to suffer with people for a long time. To come alongside and just be patient with them. The word is often translated long-suffering. Just reverse that. It's suffering long. That's what that means. We're willing to suffer long with somebody. Whatever they're going through, whatever they're facing, I'm willing to come alongside them and suffer long with them. It's easy to suffer in the moment. This is about suffering long with one another. Intentional, redemptive relationships 
have these qualities that define the kind of people we are and the kind of relationships that we have. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. I want you to notice what's not on this list. What is not on this list is giving advice and trying to fix other people. Did you hear that? That's our go-to in most situations. There is, and there is absolutely a place for speaking truth and love. There is absolutely a place for warning and exhorting. Hebrews 3 talks about exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another every day is what Hebrews tells us. But first and foremost, there must be these qualities of compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience displayed in our relationships and how we treat each other. Offering advice and trying to fix others is a poor substitute for godly counsel and biblical application. And that's often what we hear. Well, here's what you need to do. Let me tell you, I come from a family where that is the phrase. Well, here's what you need to do. That's how we, that's how we talk to each other. Well, here's what you need to do. Whatever situation, you're trying to fix each other. That is not what a person struggling needs to hear. Offering advice and trying to fix others is just a poor substitute for God. Often we offer advice and we try to fix others because we don't want to deal with their problems anymore. In intentional, redemptive relationships, these are the qualities that determine the way we act and the way we react to each other. These qualities of compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, these things define our relationship. And out of them, we are able to speak into each other's lives. But we often skip those qualities and go right into speaking into each other's lives. And all this leads to some very specific actions that Paul gives us that we take in our in intentional redemptive relationships. Number three, because of our posture toward others, this is how intentional redemptive relationships are expressed. Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So we are told in, in these intentional, redemptive relationships, we are to bear with one another and we are to forgive one another. So let's first look at bearing with each other. Living in a community where everyone is like us and thinks as we do, on everything, has a similar history, is gifted like us, they would make the same decisions that we make. Loving those people is easy. But that is not the community of faith. The truth is Christians are not all the same. People may, may be very different in their approach to life, in their parenting decisions, in their marital decisions, in their career decisions, in their political leanings, in their health care decisions. Yet we are all followers of Jesus Christ. And in the church community, there is something, there, there is to be this saturating commitment to bear with one another. Yes, we are to have one mind, one heart, one soul that's connected to Christ. But that doesn't mean that looks all the same everywhere. This means something about bearing with one another. It means that we do not turn our back on each other. Yes, I, I have, yes, there are scripture tells us there are times where people cross the line into sin that requires, that requires the church leadership to act. So I'm not saying something contrary to that. But when someone is struggling in their sin, when someone is struggling and fighting for faith, when they are resisting sin, they just keep failing over and over again. We are to keep bearing with them. If they feel crushed by life, don't let them feel crushed by the people of God. Struggling, they're struggling to find hope. Struggling because they're hurting by something they lost or, or we bear with these people. This is a call to purposefully live with the consequences of other people's actions and decisions. That's what we're called to do. None of us want to do that in our flesh. 
But we are called to live with the consequences of other people's decisions and actions that they take. Decisions and actions we would probably never make. Yet we are called to bear with one another. This means we have to live with messes that we didn't create. And we may not be able to clean up. This means we make adjustments in our lives to help with other people. See, bearing has to do with holding someone up. It's keeping them in an upright position. It's helping them to endure. This is done through listening. This is done through praying together. This is done through reading Scripture. This is done through timely notes and timely texts and timely emails. We can bear with each other by regular contact, meeting up weekly for a breakfast, for well-timed phone calls. This is just coming along somebody, knowing that they're struggling, they're hurting, and we're helping just to hold them. We're an extension of the arms of Christ. And bearing with each other is developing intentional redemptive relationships. And when we bear with each other in this way, God works something. Not just in the person we're bearing with, but God works something in our heart. When we are helping someone, caring for someone, walking alongside of someone, moving toward them, bearing with them in this way, God is working as much in our hearts as He is in their hearts. He's revealing our heart as much as He may be revealing their heart. We have as much opportunity to grow in grace as the person we are bearing with. Bearing with each other is an undeniably essential part of our sanctification. If this is not part of your life, you cannot grow fully into maturity in Christ. You can have doctrine, you can have all, if you're not rubbing up against people where you are bearing with others and others are bearing with you, your sanctification is going to be lacking. That's how it is in the body of Christ. He uses the word to grow us. He uses the Spirit. Obviously the Spirit is working with but He uses the people of God just as much. So when the phone call comes or the text pops up or a friend wants to talk to you again about the same problem, what will your response be? Now whatever our initial response is, and sometimes we can have that, oh, but then you push through that. You push through that. There is to be a determination to put on a compassionate heart with kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I, I think I mentioned this before. There was a young man in my former church, and, and he knows I, I share this, and I have his permission. Uh, he struggled with some pretty deep emotional and mental issues, stuff that was beyond me at times. And for a couple of years, I would get a text just about every Monday I'd get almost the exact same text with him pouring out in agony and anxiety his struggle to trust God and how to know what is true. For, for probably two years, I got a week, just about a weekly text like that. I wish I could say that every text met with the same willingness and gladness of heart to help a struggling brother. I think mostly... I determined to put on these character qualities in, in, in faith and in the spirit and to bear with him. But I probably had the same conversation with him 50 times. I, I pointed to the same truths, praying for God's grace and truth to be revealed, reading the same scriptures. I just kept coming back to it again and again because I have nothing else to give him. That was it. It took some time. It took much counseling. It took other brothers speaking into his life as well. There are many conversations about Christ and about the gospel. But that young man is a thriving, Christ-loving husband and father today. Now, there, there are no guarantees on it. I'm just saying, we are called to bear with one another. And finally, he says we are to, to, to forgive each other. If anyone has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. A complaint here means someone did something to you that hurt you or harmed you or was an offense against you in some way. They could have been harsh with you. They could have said something about you behind your back and it got back to you. 
They could have, they could have misrepresented you somehow. They could have simply forgotten something or forgotten to do something that they said they would do. It could have been more serious. They could have betrayed you. They could have stolen from you. They could have ridiculed you in front of others. They could have harmed you in some way. Maybe it was as serious as they abused you or shamed you. The instruction here is you are to forgive them. In the harm they caused you, the hurt they inflicted, the debt they incurred against you, we are to release them from that debt. Now, there are other scriptures that we would put alongside this that, that give us a greater process to go through with brothers and sisters like Matthew 18, going to them in private, taking witnesses, and then bringing it to the church. That's there for our good, for the health of the church. But in this, this instance, Paul is talking about the crucial need we have to purposefully and steadily move towards forgiveness toward all people who have hurt or wronged us. This needs to lodge itself into the deepest part of who we are. No matter what has been done to us, what we did against God was greater. I don't know that we always believe that. No matter how we have been hurt or harmed, our moral guilt against holy God is greater than what's been done to us. And please hear me, because I don't want to be insensitive here. This is not to say that what, we, what has been done to us, the things that we have experienced in our life that have hurt us, harmed us, been forced upon us by the hands of other people, that, that this isn't a significant... I'm not saying those things are minor. We know the level of evil and what people are capable of doing. Just this week, I, for the fourth time in my life, I had to watch, had to rewatch the ministry awareness training for, for anyone who works with our kids, and it's just so disturbing. What we are finding out that, that people, that up to close to 25% of the people who are alive carry some kind of childhood abuse with them into adulthood. It's just staggering what that means for, for a group this size. I am not in any way trying to belittle or take away from the seriousness of that. But there are ways to proceed with that and to find healing. But the healing and wholeness ultimately comes through the gospel, which comes through confession and repentance. And the truth is, as horrific as what can be done to us, as horrific as it can be, it does not compare to how horrific our defiance is of God. It, it just, that just, save, adjust. Jesus taught us in the parable of the unforgiving servant, the servant who owed what was equivalent to, to you know, Multi-millions of dollars he owed, that was forgiven, and then he turned around someone that owed him a year's salary, and he threw that person into jail. Basically, Jesus is trying to help us understand the debt we've been forgiven is so much greater than, than what's been done to us. Our intention in all of these situations, there are wise ways, there are helpful ways, there are people, especially if abuse is part, part of your life, to help you move towards this and towards forgiveness. But our purpose is always to move intentionally toward forgiveness in every instance, in our redemptive relationships. Because this is the nature of the grace that we have received when Christ forgave us. We talk about free grace. We talk about how grace is free. That's not completely accurate. Grace is free to the recipient. It costs the one giving it everything. We freely receive the grace given to us through Christ. It costs Christ his life. When we forgive others, we're saying, I am willing to take the hit for what you did to me and to live with it. It's going to come at a cost. But the one who took the greatest hit is the one who lives in us that enables us to take that hit for others. I think one of the one of the, the, the best things I've heard about forgiveness was from Ken Sandy. He wrote The Peacemaker, and he said this, Forgiveness may be described as a decision to make four promises. Forgiveness may be described as a decision to make four promises. By forgiving you, I promise that, number one, I will not dwell on this incident. 
By forgiving you, I promise that I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. By forgiving you, I promise that I will not talk to others about this incident. And by forgiving you, I promise that I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Those are tough. But that's the work, I think, ultimately of what forgiveness does. That's how God has forgiven us. He's put our sin as far as the east is from the west. He does not hold it against us. He will not bring it up and throw it in our face because it has been placed upon Christ. And we forgive others out of that. There's a power that comes, no matter how horrible what may be done to us, that allows us to look at that, feel that, and in Christ be able to respond to that in a loving, kind way. And there's, there's just one more thing before I conclude. Because we, we need to be real about this. In a community of faith, in a church, there are going to be many opportunities for us to be sinned against. Count on it. But the other side of that is, in a community of faith, there's going to be many opportunities for you to say, please forgive me. For you to initiate that and say, I, I blew that. I missed that. A pastor friend of mine who is actually one of my mentors, he, he said, if a day goes by that I don't have to ask for forgiveness, that's rare. Because he understood. We just come up short. We get full of ourselves. There's some things we do because we're not paying attention. It's not intentional. Those are the times we just say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. There are other times where we do say, man, I hurt you. I sinned against you. Please forgive me. Even as we forgive each other, let's be quick to ask for forgiveness. May we finish the race well together with intentional redemptive relationships filled with compassion filled with kindness, filled with humility, filled with meekness and patience, where we bear with each other and forgive each other. May we be a church where that is the norm, not the exception. May this church be that kind of church because when we're that kind of church, all people will know we are Christ's disciples. That will be the most compelling testimony we have to this community when they see that on display among his people. Whether that finish line is death in this life or when Christ returns, may we finish our race locked arm in arm with our brothers and sisters.